0: This is a News Laundry podcast and you're listening to Reporters
1: Without Orders. Order, order. Hello and welcome to Reporters Without Orders, a podcast where we discuss what made news, what didn't and some things that absolutely shouldn't have. This is yours truly, Cherry Agarwal, and this week we'll be discussing a crisp list of topics. This includes the National Register of Citizens or the NRC in Assam, the proposed amendments to the Right to Information Act, the killings of at least 10 members of the Gond community in Uttar Pradesh. This has come to be known as Sonabhadra Massacre, right, Ayush? Yes. We'll also be discussing a petition filed in the Bombay High Court that sought for "Alibag Se Aya Hai Kya Phrase to be banned. What? I think Gaurav would be the best to explain what this is. Before we begin, let me introduce the panel. We have Ipshita Chakravarti. Hi, Ipshita. Hi. Hello and welcome to Reporters Without Orders. Ipshita works as news editor for Kashmir and Northeast at scroll.in. She also gives, in her words, unsolicited opinions on assorted political and cultural things. <laughs> I think this is something all of us are guilty with, right, Gaurav? No. <laughs> No. no. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I am guilty for <laughs> sure. Also, making an appearance again this week is Ayush Tiwari. Hi, Ayush.
2: Again, I wasn't there last week. An appearance was the choice no. of word, huh?
1: Yes, absolutely. I mean, he. I mean, okay, let me ask you this. The nation wants to know, Ayush, why do you keep avoiding this podcast?
3: Why do you do that, Ayush? Why,
2: why do my editors assign me uh, you know outstation what? work what on the day this podcast about? has to be
3: recorded? We thought Excuse you were on a road me. trip or something, not through three stages.
1: Yeah, yeah, you went for a chutti.
2: No, no, no. Just, uh, you know, a little <laughs> offsite to Maywath and back.
1: Uh huh. So, offsite isn't necessarily work.
2: Okay. So, mm. everyone vacations in Maywath, right? Yeah. Especially Nu.
1: <laughs> Maybe you do. Who knows? Okay. Okay we also have with us Gaurav Sarkar Hi Gaurav Hi Cherry What is this what does this phrase Alibag se Ayahe? hai what does it mean
3: Uh so there's a place next to Bombay it's not in Bombay as you thought it was it's not oh. in Bombay it's closer to Pune it's called Alibag which is a retreat sort of place and the phrase There are
1: white sand beaches
3: No that's no? really it's a What myth.
1: what have people told me about Alibag There's Ali only Baag. construction
3: work that goes on right now in Alibag Are you serious yeah. there
1: are no beaches in Alibag No
3: but like film stars own a lot of uh, high tech resorts and get vacation homes in Alibag.
1: Okay. This oh. is just like beach facing, yeah. people have told me a lot of nonsense about this place then. But
3: Alibag say Ayah is a very old Bollywood phrase which, uh, so when somebody says something very random that doesn't make sense, you ask him Ki, tu se aaya hai kya? and there was a particular person in Bombay, Mr. Thakur, whose dad is an ex-Congress MLA. He petitioned the Bombay High Court last week, a petition that was dismissed by the judges, mm-hmm. and he said that we want to ban the phrase because it shows the people as uh, being illiterate and they don't show him in a good light. So... The judges told him to grow a sense of humor and mm. not come back to the court with such stupid grievances.
1: So if this is the phrase, let's say if this phrase was used in some other state's context, let's say from Assam or let's say from Uttar Pradesh, would you guys still want this to be banned, let's say, from Bombay, if it was not Alibag?
3: No, I think the judges were completely right on this. I mean, can you imagine tomorrow somebody'll say to Park Street se hai like that yeah. and it'll just become more and more territorial and more and more hyperlocal. Mm. So the judges are known like sometimes for their humor to contain situations in court this was definitely one of them
0: Ipshita, what do you think Yeah absolutely I'm trying to think of an equivalent for um Delhi or Calcutta like what do we say in Delhi Gurgaon <laughs> <laughs> se you say Jamna par hai. Actually
2: this it's not that phrase that way but there is definitely contempt what in the What is so a. the people who live the on the other side of the Yamuna yeah. so they are not See, it's a, actually comes from a prejudice of immigrants because the, pe- the societies there are constituted by people from Purvanchal and others other p- places. So back in the day when I mean we were growing up and you know class mm-hmm. was a very a heavy thing among the Delhi middle is still class. A very heavy yeah, thing. I was just going to say that. Yeah. Still, it still is probably I don't know, but. Uh, Back then, i I used to see the Punjabis of Delhi used to have hmm. a lot of contempt <laughs> for <laughs> people of Jammu. And Paar. they
3: used to say, Jamna part se aaya kya?" Not Jamna part se
2: aaya kya, but you know, dismiss people as are so Jammu se aaya. But hmm. how
3: serious does somebody, how offended does someone have to be from Ali Bagh? Mm. To actually take this to the Bombay High Court and say that Judges, can you all please ban the phrase because people are making fun of me. What I
1: I don't get is, why did the court admit the petition? Why was it even hearing it? I mean, why would
3: it not hear it? It's still Mm -hmm. a petition at the end of it. You can admit the petition and then dismiss it. So
1: however frivolous, all petitions should be accepted. It said that it was
3: offensive to him because of the region he hails from. And it Mm -hmm. shows the people who come from that region in a very bad light, Mm -hmm. who are illiterate, who are Mm -hmm. dumb. So I mean, the court heard it out, but the judgment that it gave within like a couple of minutes was really great. Where it said that you know, please don't waste our time and please grow a sense of humor. In fact, uh, there was a there, in 2017 there was a the court the Supreme Court was yeah, hearing yeah, out yeah. Uh, Santa Banta jokes <laughs> at that time. Sikh, Sikh jokes, specially, yeah, yeah, because and they
2: it made them uh, look people of low intellect and foolish. Yeah, and the Supreme Court had said that it'll issue something or the other to make sure. Yeah, that but jokes at are the banned. end of
3: it, then I think Deepak Mishra was hearing out that yeah, case, yeah. and at the end of it, he said that we won't regulate it, we leave it to the state governments to do that. So if the state yeah. government finds it offensive, then you approach the court. But if a person in his private capacity approaches with a petition, there's no reason to like take it seriously or hear him out.
2: The Santa Banta jokes was fired by these two um, Gurudwara committees. One of the Delhi and the other was the Shiro Mani some committee okay. gurudwara committee and um, the people who were defending who were actually b- arguing against the ban said key the bans never work because you know mm-hmm. even if you try and you know the meme culture especially nowadays if you try to you know clamp down on something very heavily people actually joke about it much more so what pornography came is of it? banned but pornography is everywhere on the internet so bans don't work in general and second i don't know how do you ban it anyway hmm.
3: You
1: know. But what came of it? Did the state governments do anything?
3: No. After that, there was no action taken. There was no regulation for the re- for Santa Banta jokes. I mean, you're stepping into a re- stepping into a sort of a booby trap when you say that we want to regularize or regulate jokes, you know, that is hmm. that becomes a... Because every community as observed by the Bombay High Court right now with this particular case, every community has like certain jokes. Yeah, You have Santa Banta jokes, you have Madrasi jokes, you have Bengali jokes. So if the court begins to step into that and regulate it, then where's your sense of humor?
0: Well, I guess there might have been a sting to these jokes originally, like you said, you know, the people who had migrated from Purvanchal and other parts of the country. I mean, there might have been, you know a sense of stigma attached to it. But I guess, I mean, over time, these things, I mean, the original insult fades and it's just, uh, yeah, um, yeah.
2: Definitely, I mean even in the Arlibaak case I'm, I'm sure the grievance is authentic mm. It's just that what they want That is to ban it I don't know how mm. you do that mm. For example, the whole f- Let's say a fair and lovely affair in Bollywood When mm. people came out and called it out And it you know, dhere, dhere, it's going away now mm. The same thing, Bollywood is also the place Where Sikhs are shown as you know, All the characters mm. are very jovial yeah. And they're very mm. stupid mm. So mm. It, it's, it's more of a cultural movement That takes away these things Not some court order
1: before yeah. we move on from this topic, I have I just uh, want to go back to the question I asked earlier and want both of you to weigh in. Ipshita, what do you think? Should all petitions be heard in the court? However, no, I mean, There is a
0: mechanism for hmm. dismissing frivolous petitions. And I mean, you have like insane petitions in courts and like we have given the amount of judicial pendency we have. I don't think, uh, I think the court needs to discriminate. How it discriminates, of course, is
1: another matter. Ayesh?
2: same yeah i don't feel think and anything you were
1: talking about cultural movements should cultural movements or people who are sort of foot shoulders of the these movements should they take the court's help in sort of trying to implement the move or the change in the society that they are looking for
2: they should definitely seek the court's help i mean the mm-hmm. courts are there for a reason but uh, how they seek help as i said bans are not really effective but um i think once uh, you know a learned say chief justice of india would say something that sets a sort of a precedent in the culture Mm. so if there is a civil society movement Mm -hmm. and they know that there's the chief justice of india or the courts are behind Mm. them then that just boosts the movement if not you know actually putting in place some measures Mm -hmm. to help Mm -hmm.
1: them thank you for your thoughts uh, now i want to move on to our next topic first i want to ask Ipshita, you've been writing about the NRC, you've been writing about the Northeast, you've been editing pieces from there, and you also visited the Northeast, I think, in March earlier this year. That was the last time I went, yes. So, I wanted to ask, what do you think, first, could you tell us what is the NRC? Ipshita, you've been writing about the NRC for a bit. Just a brief context for our listeners, why is it contentious? And then, from there, moving to what's been the media's coverage? Has there been fair coverage?
0: So to answer your first question, the NRC is the National Register of Citizens. And in 1951, uh, all states actually had it, according to... Uh, some historians, but um, but in Assam, it's been particularly contentious. And now Assam is updating the 1951 register of mm-hmm. citizens. It is meant to be sort of a roster of genuine Indian citizens living in Assam. And uh, one of the main, the stated intentions of this exercise is to sift um, what the state calls illegal immigrants mm-hmm. from genuine Indian citizens. Okay. Illegal in this case means undocumented migrants in many cases. To prove that you are an Indian citizen for the purposes of this exercise, you have to show that either you or your ancestors and were living in the country before March 24th, 1971, which is midnight on March 24th, 1971, mm-hmm. uh, which is uh, the eve of the Bangladesh War. So not only... Do you have to prove that, you know, your own identity, you have to give, uh, you know, show documents for showing your ancestors' presence in the country, mm-hmm. um, you know, from like at least five decades ago. And then you have to prove that you are related to that ancestor.
1: What kind of documents are accepted for this process? I mean, uh, what do I have to provide to these tribunals to prove that, okay, I'm a resident? Not tribunals,
0: uh, the NRC authorities that Correct. Are, that's Separate from the foreigners' tribunals. Okay. And Assam has two or three mechanisms for foreigner determination. Mm-hmm. So there are two sets of documents that you provide. List A or legacy documents show sort of proof of your your ancestors' presence in the country. So these could be land records or various other, or the most commonly used documents are uh, sort of your ancestors' names in either the 1951 NRC or pre-1971 electoral rolls. Okay. Now, what the Office of the NRC did was they uh, digitized most of these documents, these these electoral Mm -hmm. rolls and the 1951 NRC, and they put them up online, and so you could sort of they create a database which you could visit and then you could sort of mm-hmm. find your sort of ancestor, father, grandfather, whoever's name on these roles. Mm-hmm. And then you have to prove, uh, then the list B documents are uh, link documents, mm-hmm. which prove that you are related to this person that you have, you are claiming is mm-hmm. your ancestor. So, I mean, this could be, you know, passport, matriculation certificate. You know, there are also like several I mean, ration cards, mm-hmm. uh, bank accounts, but... You know, as it, I mean, there are many complications. As the process progressed, we realized that some documents were viewed with more suspicion than others. Which are these documents um, and why? So, so a lot of women uh, provided Gram Panchayat certificates, mm-hmm. which are uh, sort of married women in, mm-hmm. say, rural Assam. Um, most of them with few other documents to prove that they were related to say their father or grandfather so these certificates say that such and such person originally from such and such village daughter of so and so got married and moved to this village okay so these are the only kind of link documents that these women had Mm -hmm. uh but then you know, uh, in twenty seventeen the Gohati High Court suddenly said that you can't use these documents. These are not legally admissible. They're okay. not recognized as off- official documents. Uh then I mean it's a very complicated legal process, but uh then the court, Supreme Court said that you um you can use these documents, provided they are bolstered by other submit uh okay legally admissible documents. But I mean, it's a truism because many of the women who'd use these documents have no other proof Mm -hmm. of, uh, you know,
1: parentage. So that's one example. So apart from the procedural flaws Hmm. that you described, Hmm. what makes this so contentious?
0: number of reasons. So the thing is like in Assam, it stems from a particular history in a particular context. Uh, It's a border state. It has... An old history of tensions between, you know, Bengalis and Assamese people, uh, dating back to colonial times. It has seen waves of migration from starting from, you know, the late 19th century. Then, even after partition, you know, from, you know, partition, communal violence, war, various, uh, and even economic migration. Mm-hmm. Various reasons have driven people across the border. Now, so there are primarily ethnic tensions in Assam which mm-hmm. drove this process of NRC. Because, you know, people in Assam, the, the Assam movement in the 70s and 80s, they, it was an anti-foreigner's movement.
1: Correct.
0: And where they felt that uh, illegal Bangladeshis were sort of um, entering the country, entering illegally, entering electoral roles, changing political futures. So, as you can see, there are kind of, I think, prejudices built mm-hmm. into it. There is also... Uh, it, in, in recent times, there has been a, a communal hue to these tensions as well. I mean, not mm-hmm. even recent times, you know, in the 1980s, you had the Nelly massacre. But, you know, when the BJP government at the center, when they talk about uh, the NRC, mm-hmm. they try to kind of transmit the these anxieties of a border state with a particular history to the rest of the country in ways that could be, you know, disastrous Mm -hmm. and the you know People, you know, like the home minister the talks about infiltrators, mm-hmm. ghuspetia, um, mm. you know, immigrants are termites Correct. who need to be sort of kind of exterminated from mm-hmm. the body body politic. And the implicit, in, at the center at least, the construction of the illegal immigrant is, uh, you know, implicitly the, uh, the illegal
1: immigrant is a Muslim immigrant. Uh, that or is what brings... This the contention of it being it targeting particular groups.
0: Yes, I mean in Assam, it ta- uh, we don't have official figures, but anecdotal evidence suggests that Bengali-speaking people, both Hindu and Muslim, have been left out of the draft NRC. The second draft. Yes, uh, that was last year, published last year. But I mean. It, I mean, the BJP, you know, brought up, you know, the Citizenship Amendment Bill by which it proposed to give ease citizenship for, you know, persecuted minorities in uh, sort of in Bangladesh, Pakistan and Afghanistan. Uh, But these minorities are all non-Muslim minorities. And, you know, Sam, it would mean that a lot of Bengali Hindus Mm -hmm. who might have been left out of the NRC
1: would be regularized. But the two together would mean Muslims would not be. Muslims would not be eligible exactly. for citizenship. And
0: this had a backlash in Assam because in Assam it's primarily ethnic tensions right. which drive this exercise.
1: I want to come back to you with a couple of questions about media and media's coverage. But before that, I want to bring Ayesha and Gorov in as people who've been watching the media. What do you think of the media's coverage of the NRC? Was it sufficient? Was it fair? Did that, as readers, as news consumers, did that give you enough information about the NRC and what's happening there?
2: To be honest, it can be because of my own not following the issue too well. Mm-hmm. But in you know, there are days when I do look out and try to understand what the NRC is. And actually, I haven't read much besides Kroll. And mm-hmm. I should also compliment you and Anurab for the fantastic coverage you guys have done on the issue because, you know, I get those push notifications and (laughs) it's only from the scroll app. But besides that, uh, there were some express explainers from back in the day, but no. Mm -hmm. So even because the issue has been a year, more than a year old now, when you read articles in, you know, the mainstream media, they take it as an assumption that the reader knows what the NRC means Mm. and therefore the the developments are reported, you know, after that. So anyone who is not well versed with this and to be honest, I don't know how much you agree but the whole NRC the issue and the developments have been rather confusing. Oh, Very very confusing. So it's been hard to follow uh, and there's almost multitudes of Mm. understanding of how it works and what it is. So I am a confused uh, bird in that way.
1: You should definitely go to a podcast that we recorded earlier with Arunab. And this actually reminds me of the conversation with him. He, I had asked him why has it been so difficult to not get clarity or get concise reporting. This was, I think, last year before all this blew up to the extent that we're talking about now. And he said the issue is Assam and the Northeast come with so many layers that People, especially from, uh, let's say, the North, uh, the North India, when they go there, they find it difficult to struggle to understand the history, which is why the reporting has been so limited, because there are so many layers that will take time for a reporter to go there and to understand before they begin reporting, which right. doesn't necessarily happen with so many bureaus closing down and reporters actually just going there, let's say, for a week or two weeks. Gaurav?
3: Adding to what Yuvan Ayush said uh I want to say that, yeah, it is, I think that the whole issue has played out in phases, which makes it even tougher to keep a track of, because then you have to consciously be tracking it since day one to understand what the developments have been. Historically, it's a very uh, it's a very convoluted issue and it dates back to pre-1971. Uh, what I did like about the final count, you know, the project that you guys are doing at Scroll is that it was a one-stop place where you could practically get all the information. And in terms of media's coverage, legacy media or mainstream media didn't seem to give the issue that much importance. But I feel like independent media like Wire, Quint, uh, Scroll, they did a really good job on it, you know, and uh, it actually brought the piece all together. It showed, uh, you know, how even the flood is affecting the registration because like documents are getting tattered. So I think there's a fine distinction in the way independent media and legacy media covered the issue.
1: I think it's also about sort of the priority in resources that legacy media or independent media can allocate that decision-making comes from what importance is given to what news within the newsroom.
3: But I mean that way it's a little weird because Legacy Media chose not to cover the Assam floods and they dedicated like six days of coverage to the Bombay floods (laughs) which I mean it just goes to show that we don't report that much on that that side you know.
1: True. Uh, Coming back to you Ipsita, you've been reporting on it, you've been writing about it. So if you want to let's say do some research, what is your go-to resource portal and what are your thoughts on the media's coverage?
0: Um, I basically look at academic work uh, Mm -hmm. on on the history of Assam. And, you know, actually a lot of... uh, I was trying to read up more on the 1951 NRC and what it was and the motivations behind the process. And um, there's actually very little that I could find. And I'm told that a lot of archival material has not been made available to the public. So um, much of this process is opaque, mm-hmm. but it's also an intensely confusing bureaucratic process, the NRC itself, you know, various layers of verification, re-verification. Mm-hmm. Then Assam has not just one mechanism for foreigner determination, but two, like there are the foreigners' tribunals, Correct. which operate separately. There's, you know, the border police, which refer cases to the tribunals. Mm-hmm. There are D voters or doubtful voters declared by the election commission, who also have to fight their cases in the tribe. So it's it's a Byzantine process, which even I... I mean, I think the the, uh, the only way one can really gauge what is going on is through reporting, is through going mm-hmm. to Assam, speaking to as many people as possible, mm-hmm. Um
1: That's uh, really the only way. Uh, Could you tell us the difference between uh, the foreigners' tribunals, which Mm. are considered a quasi-judicial body, Mm. and the NRC authorities? How do they overlap or how do we distinguish? What are the different roles?
0: So the tribunals have been set up... I mean, well, there was a a 1964 Foreigners' Tribunals Act, so they are set up under that, but most of them came into existence uh, from 1983... Uh, during the throes of the anti-foreigners movement uh, mm-hmm. in Assam, they are a foreigner determination they they, uh, they decide on matters of disputed nationality
1: mm-hmm. and that's necessarily not communal, not based on religion.
0: I mean none of this is officially based on religion. It's just in the way it plays out. Correct. It seems like it is disproportionately affected one community mm-hmm. um but uh, even that actually scratch that we don't really know uh the numbers mm-hmm. but um mostly in assam because of assam specific social cultural context it's been bengali speakers whether okay. hindu or muslim uh nrc is under the it, it's it's a supreme the updation of the nrc is a supreme court monitored process uh, the de- Department is under the, officially under the Home Department of the Government of Assam, but they don't really report to the state government, they report to, you know, citizenship is a central subject. Okay. And they are, they are involved in this bureaucratic process of updating the regi- register, uh, collecting mm-hmm. documents, and, and people who are left out of the final NRC will be declared non-citizens. Mm-hmm. They then have to uh, fight their cases in the foreigners' tribunals. If they lose those cases, then only then will they be declared foreigners. And then what happens? Yeah, that's the bit. No one really knows. Um, you know, you have uh, detention centers in Assam. You have six detention centers so far. These are mostly spaces carved out of uh, local prisons. Mm-hmm. I think there are about 900 to 1,000 people in these centers uh, at the moment. And uh, there, there is. I mean, technically, apparently they're supposed to be deported to Bangladesh, but Bangladesh does not acknowledge such people as its own citizens. You see, you see, this is not a simple matter of you know you came and overstayed on your visa, or you strayed illegally. You know, you were arrested at the border trying to cross. Mm-hmm. These are people. Many of, most of these people are, have been living here for decades, and suddenly they, their citizenship is in doubt and they've been declared foreigners mm. so bangladesh does not accept it in uh, accept them india does not have a, a repatriation treaty with bangladesh so until then you know it, it, most people were subject to indefinite detention uh, you know which could which is what on. i
1: was wondering if india says these let's say, a set of people are illegal yeah. and Bangladesh doesn't want to accept them. What happens to these people?
0: They're essentially stateless. And earlier, you know, you it could you were liable to be put into indefinite detention. Now, in May, the Supreme Court said that people who have been held for more than three years could be uh, released on bail, but you have to provide bail bonds worth rupees 2 lakh, which most of these people cannot afford. Yes, because they're the... You know, among the poorest residents of Assam,
1: Ayush, what do you think of the BJP's call for a pan-India NRC?
2: Um, well, looking at how it's going out in Assam, it's not very encouraging, nor the very you know, doesn't make you very cheerful.
1: And knowing that Mr. But Shah himself called these illegal immigrants termites.
2: Well, I don't expect anything better from him, but uh, it's That shows
1: very little confidence in your elected representative Yeah, I have mm-hmm. no
2: confidence I have little confidence in my elected representative I didn't even vote, but for God's sake But, uh, I don't know It's I think what he was trying to do was test the waters, mm-hmm. because uh, as she said, you know, try, trying to tap into those uh, as a border states anxieties and, you know, their historical uh, tensions and nervousness mm-hmm. But, uh, they were just trying to test the waters. They were trying to see what kind of response they got. Mm -hmm. I don't think they're serious about an NRC for the entire country that will be unprecedented but then <laughs> Mr. Shah is also unprecedented
1: <laughs> yeah the expression on your face is that of shock but also that it's possible that Mr. Shah can pull off anything yeah of such scale. <laughs> Ipshita any closing thoughts on media's coverage about the NRC? Um,
0: yeah I think as I said I mean this is a completely Byzantine process and uh, I, I, I don't think enough has been done to uh, explain it and to explain how difficult it actually is to prove citizenship, even mm-hmm. if you have been living in a place for generations. I mean, who has these documents going back five decades proving that you're you're related to these people? Uh, and also that, that the NRC in Assam is of a specific time and context, that there are various anxieties specific to Assam. I don't think enough has been done to convey that.
1: You know, by the media. Yeah, I there's this question which has been, you know, gnawing at the end at the back of my head, which is should journalism be activism driven that we are fighting for the rights of the people so we need to sort of establish what they're going through? Or should it be a very objective process that this is what is happening? and this is how things are. Or should it be like, this is what is happening, this is wrong, we gotta raise our voice, we gotta cover it more and more so that the government takes note and does something about it. Gaurav, beginning with you. Just quick round before we move to the next topic. Well, I
3: think it's a very grey area, first of all, because sometimes when you're on the ground and the issue is, uh, it it revolves around human rights or it's a very important issue, you tend to get drawn into taking part in a protest as opposed to covering it as a bystander. So I think it's a very grey area. In some cases where it's really sensitive, you should listen to what like is going on within you and create a human side to it. But otherwise, objectivity is of utmost importance when you're reporting on stuff that is really sensitive on the ground.
1: Correct. Ipshita?
0: Absolutely. It's a, it's a tough uh, line to navigate. But as you said, to establish, what, to, to report on what people are going through, I don't think that... Uh, uh violates the idea of objectivity because okay. i mean just i mean the objective is to get as much information out there as possible you know what people are, are going through their everyday lives also what government is thinking i mean it would be great if the government could tell us more about what they're thinking <laughs> and you know the bureaucracy the police you know just just everything you know just put everything out there correct Aish.
2: Well as they said I mean objectivity is a farce you can't be objective you know even as a journalist however hard you try but uh, what I see it as is simply journalist journalist should always always report what he Mm -hmm. sees, he Mm -hmm. or she sees Mm -hmm. and if that means bringing to light the victimhood of people sure that should be you know one of the you are at the end of the day telling the state how they are you know uh, doing wrong things Mm -hmm. and to bring the victims ahead and show the state these are you know mm-hmm. that's fine but activism if it goes into again this some sort of um, almost a state of delirium where a journalist might lose you know his judgment and start relating too much for example we have now have media houses that you know outrightly identify with certain identities of hindu identity and report mm-hmm. on the, the, those mm-hmm. matters then it's uh, it's useless that's not objective at all
1: okay but uh in the interest of time we will move on from this ayush what did you think was over-reported or under-reported over the last two weeks because you were definitely on chutti but yes
2: on. I'll tell you something that was misreported. So, okay. um, last week I was in Mewat, in the you know town of Nuh, where a 12-year-old Dalit girl said she was raped on July 7th by three men, four men who happen to be Muslim. So I was actually anticipating it to blow out like that Tappal case, you know, where the girl is Hindu and the, the perpetrators happen to be Muslim. So I was thinking it'll blow all over. It did not. But what I did discover when I was reporting on it was that the mainstream media houses that did carry small and crisp reports of what happened had got some of the very basic facts wrong. For example, this girl she claimed she was raped, but there's a medical report that has gone, you know, with her with the samples. And um, the Sun Times reported that, that medical report said that she wasn't raped. It has confirmed that she wasn't raped. But I went there and I talked to the person who's heading the investigation, the DCP, and he said there is the final opinion is not out. We don't know yet whether she was raped was or not. There
1: a- preliminary report that said she wasn't raped
2: no there's no such report
1: what did uh, ht base their thing on
2: no one knows and it's an ht correspondent uh, byline they have so which report they talk about there's just one report with the samples that has mm-hmm. gone there's a counseling report which i got a hand uh, I got access to it says it just notes the you know the victims narration of the events and she says i was raped so they got that wrong then in the, uh, the Times of India reported and said that um, the girl had actually gone to meet someone she knew and this person she knew actually you know along with three others raped her she, that's not the case she did not know any one of these actually what it turned out uh, later realizes that the the ghetto from where these three men belonged in that ghetto people believe that you know our sons are innocent this girl she knew this other boy from another locality so she went to meet him it's her fault um she should know they had an affair so she got it uh, the bad side of it but it it is those little mythologies that people often create you know to try Mm -hmm. to protect their own but and times of india reported that version and that's not true a 12 year old girl does not know that 24 year old man who raped her so I don't know how they get to get the basic facts or get the you know smallest nuggets of information wrong on such a disastrous scale because if this matter goes to say you know like it went to the National Human Rights Commission which issued a notice to the DCP of Haryana and they obviously said they rely on media reports and they stated certain facts and they obviously their information was also based on these HT and TOI reports and it was wrong they said the girl was raped over two days that wasn't the case also so it's just baffling how you can't and when i met the woman the grandmother of the kid she's an orphan she said no one came to meet me so obviously all this information was uh, derived without meeting the guardian of the victim mm-hmm. so that it turned out to be a media critique piece but um, just misreporting so going back, at the
1: going back to my previous question using this case as an example if you did not have access to medical records while i understand the need to trust the survivor and the complainant which is this little girl in this case then how do you go out and say that she was raped only by trusting her testimony i don't get the question i mean if you have to report what happened right Mm. like you said the medical records aren't out but if Let's say a media organization reports that she was raped without medical records. Would that be classified as activism rather than journalism?
2: No, I mean, if the girl states that she has been raped, then you simply, you know right, that she claims she has been raped. You you needn't pass any judgement on the fact of whether she was raped or not. You don't need to establish it, you know, prematurely. But you should state her version of things. Mm -hmm. So that's the simple idea. There's no activism there as such.
1: No, I say activism because, to my understanding, Gaurav, please weigh in. Ipshita, please weigh in. To my understanding, as journalists there's need for corroboration, right? uh, Similarly for NRC, let's say someone says that they are are citizens, but they don't have documents to prove. But we go out and say as journalists that, let's say, XNX X is a citizen, but we haven't seen the records, but we are saying they are citizens. So isn't that non-journalistic because we aren't able to corroborate the testimony of what this person is saying?
2: Okay, I mean... It's not the perfect analogy. I mean, one is a bureaucracy, another's personal experience. But for example, if just if I had just had to go beyond the girl's testimony, mm-hmm. I mean, I met her grandmother. Uh, there are things I didn't put in my copy because they were rather gruesome. But she did tell me the kind of things her granddaughter was going through, which very evidently pointed to the fact that she was violated. I mean, th- that, is, that is another thing that a journalist can do. I didn't state this in the copy, because first of all, I didn't go, I didn't actually doubt her fact that she, her testimony was by any means wrong. But yeah, the little nuggets of information of how the girl has been, what are the symptoms, you know, post the incident, they, you can match those up. But of course, if you have to purely rely on documents, then, then you should absolutely wait until the medical records come in.
1: Ipshita
0: do you want so to So I think it's a key to attribute mm-hmm. um, and to report as transparently as possible. You know from what I've discovered in my sort of reporting from Kashmir northeast is there are always versions. So, you know so we can't be godlike in like declaring, you know, this is the truth of the matter. We need to, I think, say, you know, report what the family said. Uh, also try and go to the police and ask them what they think and then put out both, both versions. And then it is for the reader to decide.
1: Okay, moving on. Gaurav, what did you think was overreported? What was underreported over the last week or what caught your eye?
3: Well, uh, so the Bombay high court case that we just spoke about, the Mm -hmm. Ali one, was my second favorite court case this week. (laughs) Uh, The first one was a severely underreported case in the Delhi high court where uh, this NGO from Bangalore called the Great Legalization Movement and uh, they seek to regularize the use of cannabis recreationally and medically in India. So TGLM, the great legalization movement had petitioned the Bombay High Court back in 2014 as well. But because of a lot of pushback from parents and from organizations, they just they withdrew their petition, but they're back this time parents. in the Delhi High Court. Huh? And uh, they talk about how hemp should be used across industries, you know, to save on like, so as to not use plastic or to, or to not cut trees. And it specifically pointed out towards the NDPS Act, which is the Narcotic Drugs and Psychotropic Substances Act, which is a law from 1857, uh, which basically clubs category A, B and C drugs in the same category. So the petition points out to ambiguity like, you know, bhang ho, to at that time everyone just turns a blind eye. When it comes to Ayurveda, you know, using it in Ayurveda, then also you will turn a blind eye. But if there's a recreational use of it, then you'll come down with a fine that is equivalent to doing a line of cocaine, you know, which is completely unparalleled. In fact, in the US as well, the drugs are classified in A, B, C, depending like methanol come in C. Cannabis will come in like A, which means that it's not really addictive, but it's still like a psychotropic drug. So this was my favorite case that went down and only bar and bench seemed to report it. And then Vice went off yeah. on the bar and bench report and obviously spoke a little about
2: it. In fact, uh, the the stringent, the clubbing of, you know, very dangerous uh, drugs with uh, substances like cannabis mm-hmm. came about in the 80s when the reagan administration pressured rajiv gandhi to make an amendment in the ndps and Act. i think
3: that was because they wanted to uh, legalize alcohol at that time and yeah, they wanted yeah. to trump alcohol sales. i think it was during the prohibition if i'm it not was wrong. during
2: the whole war on drugs hysteria that was going on in north america that's when they and they tried to obviously put in put that in place in india also and it was out of pressure that we did it but culturally speaking the disdain towards cannabis only comes from Victorian and going by some Brahmanical orthodoxy mm-hmm. in this land there is no such no it's shiva Shivaka prasad by the way mm-hmm. so I don't Bambolus. know so you
1: actually shouldn't ban it then hmm you actually shouldn't ban it then, since it is... No, courts. you should
3: regulate it. That's that's the whole point that the petition is making, that you should cut out on the black market cartel, which is dealers, and you should tax the product, like how Colorado has done. They made like a billion... Which is in what state I'm prop.
1: saying. It should be regulated and shouldn't have to operate in the black market because it is Shivaka prashad. And given how India has been functioning mm-hmm. based on these sentiments... I think you have a free hand. Why don't you go file a petition?
3: I'll just follow the case for now.
2: Parents would uh, scold us now. That's (laughs) the only problem.
1: As if you listened to your parents, both of you.
2: But you know, in Colorado, the newspapers have a green editor just to uh, carry pieces and perspectives and opinions on um, legalization. But we will be covering this
3: case now, from here
0: on.
1: With activist zeal. (laughs) (laughs) Moving on, I wanted to speak about how the amendments to the Right to Information Act has been superly underreported. I thought given that how important RTI is as a tool for public to access information that the government may or may not want to reveal, I thought these amendments which sort of attack the structure which would take away the independence of the RTI, it was really underreported just to give... Just to explain what the RTI is and what are the changes that are being proposed, here's a brief explainer. So under the RTI Act 2005, public authorities are supposed to make disclosures on various aspects. This includes uh, organization, function structures, powers and also financial information, which if we look at the bullet project in uh, Ahmedabad, government just doesn't want to make. So this was an important tool to hold, sort of bring accountability to opaque processes. But the changes that are being proposed would sort of systemically uh, do away with the structure that we have. So we have a currently we have a three tier structure, you have uh, public authorities appointing public information officers, if you're not satisfied, or you're not happy with the order or the information they are providing, then you can appeal the order to appellate authorities. And if you're not happy with that, then you can again, there's a second appeal, you can appeal again and they have to respond within 30 days. So now the changes that are being proposed are as follows. Last week on July 19th, the government introduced a bill titled the Right to Information Amendment Bill 2019. This proposed law will make changes to the salaries and tenures of the appointed information commissioners. The tenure right now is fixed at five years and the salary is equivalent to the chief election commissioner and the election commissioners respectively. But if this law gets passed, the decision to as to what the salary would be and what the tenure would be, would be decided by the central government. I mean, again, you're giving back the power to the central government rather than decentralizing power. So information officers that could have gone after the government saying, like, you need to provide information to this person, they might not be able to do it because now the salary and tenure is the government's decision. So I thought this was super important. And given that a lot of media organizations themselves rely on information from these public authorities we are these officers this should have caught the media i and the media should have as i put it earlier should have taken the activist role and should have reported on it but and given that about 80 did you know about 80 rti activists have been killed in the past year in the past couple of years 80, 80. 80. this was this data i picked up from aruna roy's article in the hindu 80, 80. i was actually really shocked That's insane. That is. And I was just surprised how people have not reported on this and the government can just go ahead and pass it and you would have little or no access to information that is currently being put in the public domain. Is there anything anyone wants to add to this?
3: One point particularly is that so right now it got passed in the Lok Sabha, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There was a lot of uproar from the opposition and there was a lot of pushback as well. What I wanted to ask generally is that since there's already so much of a pushback in the Lok Sabha, you know, where the current government is in a majority. In the Rajya Sabha, that's not really the case. So for this bill to get passed in the Rajya Sabha is going to be a completely different ballgame depending on uh, how well the opposition play this out, you know. And in my personal opinion, I think it's a it's a move to like clamp down on what what the government wants you to know and what they particularly do not want you to know. So it's a very dangerous precedent to try and amend the RTI Act in itself, especially with these suggestions.
0: But you know, I feel like there you know the media at least should. I mean, I would like to be able to read uh, an article that that joined the dots because you know the government has argued that this makes RTI. This this stream streamlines the RTI Act, makes it more uh, efficient, better delivery, la But you know how exactly these kind of bureaucratic changes to salaries, you know, and the tenures of of the RTI um, officers actually translates into curbing the scope of the law and curbing people's
1: uh, right to know. You know we. I think we, um, we need more clarification yes. on that. Just to address that bit about what the amendment bill says is why the government is putting this forward is that the functions being carried out by the election commission of India and the central and state information Commissioner commissions are totally different. That is their reason for asking to regulate the tenures and salaries. I mean, I don't understand this. So you're right. I mean, a piece explaining how this ends up curbing the rights of people would be very important. And
2: it shouldn't be seen in isolation either. I mean, if you look at what they did at the finance ministry, the quarantine to restrict the access of journalists. And the excuse they gave was that it was meant to, you know, uh, make hassle-free movement easier. And the whole thing about taking away advertisements from these couple of newspapers known to be critical of the government. It's a trend of taking, uh, making sure that the civil society and the press... Um, you know, they erecting walls that doesn't let them go through and see what the state is up to.
1: Okay, that's a wrap for today. But before we go, would you, uh, would everyone like to share their recommendations? Uh, Ayush?
2: So, a large scale massacre in Sonbhadra district, which is in the UP Bihar border, 400 kilometers away from Lucknow.
1: About 10 people from the Goan community were shot down over a land dispute?
2: Yes, and there were. I think
1: dispute was a misnomer. Isn't
2: there it? was a. There was a piece of land that you know the farmers used to work on and uh, they used to pay a rent to a trust for working on that piece of land and it turns out the two of the trustees sold that land to this one individual Mm -hmm. and the farmer said okay you sell it to him so we pay rent to him and we'll work on the land but the guy was like no I want all of this complete possession and uh when they these people the people of the gond community who are dalits you know they went to negotiate with the pradhan who had bought the land they are gujar but they are backward dominant community over there negotiations followed and soon it turned into pretty heated and the pradhan and his men shot dead 10 people of the gond community on the spot uh i didn't see a really rigorous coverage of this besides the Indian Express, which did a very good job of covering it. So that's my recommendation. They have done a series of, uh, you know, investigative reports on this. So people should read that
1: to tell you the truth I didn't come to know about or read about this on the day I read about this when Priyanka Gandhi Vadra went there and there was this Twitter's mm-hmm. drama about Priyanka and Son Badra and that is when I read about this which made me think how underreported, how serious first how serious this issue is there are 10 people being shot dead I mean what really yeah. and the media I just was amazed that there was so there was I was looking for ground reports to understand what really happened and like Ipshita said that "Quote unquote, it was a land dispute, and I was trying to understand what really happened. What is this land dispute? And I found very little ground reports. Sorry,
0: oh my God, and not just land dispute. The initial report said um, there was a gunfight. I mean, there was no fight here. There were, from what from what later reports suggest, men in a tractor came and just opened fire on people, killing th- uh, killing ten people. You know, it's completely one-sided."
2: There was there was a drain nearby at the site of this massacre where people went and hid. You know they went inside, crept inside. It's like if you've seen um, Inglorious Bastards, the opening scene, and they actually took people out of the drain and then shot them. Wow, so Express has covered it very extensively, but um, I was saying it was they did cover it a day before Priyanka Gandhi Wadra went there. But I think I think the nearest police station to where this ha- the thing has happened is twenty five kilometers away. So the, even the police had to take a couple of hours by the time they reached there. So no wonder it's it reached Delhi so late, of course.
1: But even then, I mean, there's no excuse for misreporting. Yeah, what yeah definitely is. not. I mean, even for ground reporting, I mean, you have to report. This is very serious.
3: So two important uh, updates in the Sonbhadra case. One is that uh, you know we didn't discuss about how the people, you know, the, the ten people who were killed, the villagers wanted them to be buried at the site of the dispute itself and there was a huge UN cry about this but the administration won and they convinced the people that you know you have to do you have to bury them wherever you bury them usually not at the site of the dispute the second thing is that a committee headed by the additional chief secretary of revenue has been appointed to look into the claims of this land that has been bought from that bihar ips officer if i'm not wrong so they the the committee will have to submit a report within 10 days which will shed further light on the issue
1: gaurav what would you like to recommend um
3: it's this book called the new new journalism by robert s boynton uh, okay. it's a 2005 And it creates a parallel to Tom Wolfe's idea of new journalism, where, you know, he talks about how they were the new generation of writers. And the new, new journalism uh, talks about the best nonfiction writers in America, most of them from the New Yorker, who uh, basically undertake projects for about six, eight months. So there's one of the guys in the book, who became a hobo traveling, traveling the subways for about six months, and then wrote like a 18,000 word piece on it. And the new new journalism talks about just getting each and every bit of information and putting it on paper. That's Gonzo, right? But it's the new form of Gonzo journalism. Uh, Gonzo, I think, mm, is uh, Hunter S. Thompson's yeah, yeah brand. Okay. Why were you making faces at eighteen thousand words?
1: Ipshita, what would you like to recommend?
0: Um, I would like to recommend I think Conversations with Friends which is a book by Sally Rooney which I just read what is the book about it's, it's, it's by this Irish author and uh, it's about kind of broadly speaking I suppose relationships you know friendships um, romantic sexual relationships but it's it's really witty it's really smart about makes very smart observations about how these things work in you know in modern life and, um... It, and the prose is
1: just beautiful it goes down like water you can read it in a day or two okay uh, I want to recommend three things one is the Ugh,
3: three things
1: <laughs> <laughs> one is the piece I was referring to the tremor of unwelcome amendments to the RTI Act written it's an op-ed written by Aruna Roy and Nikhilde in the Hindu then there's an RTI explainer uh, published by PRS please do check that out and the third piece is an op-ed by Gautam Bhatia again in the Hindu Hindu. It's titled Inhumane and Utterly Undemocratic. This is about why the NRC process is uh, so contentious and why the Supreme Court sort of, uh, the Supreme Court's decision becomes flawed in sort of uh, allowing the foreigner, uh, foreigner's tribunal's decision to sort of go on and become what the decision becomes making people illegal immigrants and taking away their citizenship. Please do check that out. Do check out newslaundry.com for amazing work.
2: And listeners, if you're listening to this podcast on Stitcher, iTunes or now even on Spotify, don't forget to log on to our website www.newslaundry.com to check out the other cool stuff that we do.
1: So that's a wrap for the episode. Thank you everyone who listens to us. Please write to us with your feedback, with comments, with things you'd like to listen. If you'd like to participate in the podcast to talk about media's reportage, please write to Parikshit at parikshat at newslaundry.com. If you want to send us criticism, comments, please, you can leave it on Gaurav and Ayush's timeline. You can send DMs to us on Instagram. And remember to pay to keep news free, independent and azad. Because unless you do that, we won't be able to put out podcasts like these. We won't be able to put out podcasts like the Hafta or reports that we do you can tweet about this podcast to let people know if you like us if you don't like us if you'd like to recommend our work with hashtag reporters without orders
3: also dear listeners uh, don't forget to head to www.themediarumble.com and buy your tickets for the media rumble which will be taking place at the india habitat center in new delhi on august 2nd and 3rd Ayesh, a-
1: did you buy your tickets
3: Uh, I don't have to buy tickets, actually.
1: (laughs) That is right. For subscribers, it would be free.
2: Uh, Yeah, I'm a subscriber. I forgot.
1: (laughs) You Uh, totally are. I also happen (laughs) to work here, by (laughs) the (laughs) way. But dear listeners, it's a forum where you would get to hear a lot of amazing speakers and you would be able to listen to ideas and how whether news is working and how we can make news work if it is not. So do check out the Media Rumble. You can also check out NL Sena. Uh, We have a new project up. It's about who owns your media. News Laundry had done this project earlier in 2014 and we need your support to execute this project once again. I hope you check out NL Sena and the Media Rumble and subscribe to News Laundry.